Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, April the 8th, 2013. This is episode 1106, 1106 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Monday, Glum Day, it's time to at least have a little bit of fun by taking your emails to jack at the survival podcast.com today. Remember, I get about 200 ish. To, on a light day to closer to three to four hundred on a heavy day of emails. I can't get everybody's email on, but if you follow the procedure, there's a good chance if you keep sending me stuff sooner or later, some of your stuff will get on the air. You could send me an email to jack at the survival podcast.com. Put question for Jack, comment for Jack, video for Jack, question for Jack subject for Jack, something like that in the subject line. One word followed by the words for Jack. You'll end up in the right folder at least, and that'll get you through the uh, screening process. Make your point or tell me what it's about. Really brief, one sentence or two at the top. Provide me a link if there's an online resource, and then give me all the details you want after that. That's the formula for success in getting on the air. That helps me screen your emails quicker and more accurately, and that gives you a better chance of not just getting deleted because, well, I'm tired and don't feel like reading that particular moment when I got to your email. <laughs> All right, now, at least I'm honest about it, guys, okay? I mean, seriously. Anyway, uh, before I get to your emails, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you. Uh, Monday through Friday, five days a week for about an hour a day. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. Hey, if you want to know how to make knives and you don't know how to make knives, you're like, well, where do I start? Go over to Knife Kits because they have a kit. You buy the kit. And you're not really sure what to do even with the kit level, well, then you can get a book or a DVD. And if you really don't know what to do, call them up and they'll tell you what to do. And next thing you know, you'll be making knives like a pro. But what if you're already a pro? What if you just need really cool raw materials? Damascus steel, buffalo horn, mammoth tusks, stuff like that to make the coolest knives on the planet? They've got that too. From beginner to advanced to master. They've got what you need. They're incredibly well thought of. They're a great sponsor. Been with us a long time, over two years now. And they do a discount for the member support brigade. You can't ask for a lot more from a sponsor than all that. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle from Magpul magazines to Maxpedition bags and everything else in between. You'll find it at Sawtooth Tactical, including the awesome, the badass titanium spork. Check them out today. At sawtac.com, and they also do a discount for the MSB, so you'll want to check them out for that as well. Um, I'll tell you what, guys, I also want to remind you today about the gear shop. Check out tspgear.com. We have some really cool stuff in the gear shop. And walkingtofreedom.com. Uh, I'm going to get out right now, pause the recording, go over there and approve all the pending members. That's something I get slowed down on from time to time. If you have uh, signed up for the forum and you haven't gotten a, the email that says your account's activated, just go try to log in with whatever you set your account up with. Odds are I've done it and it's sitting in your spam box. We'd love to have you at Walking to Freedom. The time left to vote on the naughty list is rapidly ticking down like so many different clocks in our lives 
so we'd love to have your participation at walkingtofreedom.com. Well, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members, and you'll help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps Active Duty and Prior Service. Email me before, not after you join. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did, and I'll give you a discount code that'll save you even more money. I also extend this to first responders like EMTs and paramedics and firefighters. All right, with that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up. Let's go ahead and take the first email I have in the docket for you guys today. Actually, first up today, though, is not an email. It's an announcement. I wanted to let you know that we'll be doing special meet and greets at the Self-Reliance Expo, as we always do. The one that's coming up next is uh, Arlington Convention Center right here near my hometown. That'll be April 26th and 27th, so just a few weeks away. And... uh I wanted to let you know who's going to be at the meet and greet so far. Well, I'll be there, and you'll be there if you show up. The way it works is you show up a half hour before the doors open for everybody else, and uh, you just go to the front of the the, the uh, entryway and kind of form a, a TSP mob group there, and uh, Ron or Scott will come out and escort you into the stage area. And uh, you'll be surrounded by people who are all from the TSP audience and all there to, to meet with you and, and, and me and the, uh, the panel that we'll put together for a 30-minute Q&A panel. Um, I might be actually have – I might have pulled something off. I, I don't know yet. We'll see. He's kind of got stage uh, resistance, I guess. It's not really fright. But Dave Duffy. Uh, who's an incredibly gifted libertarian commentator from Backwoods Home Magazine. I've invited him. I don't know if he's going to do it or not, but I'd like to have him up there with us, and I'd like that'd be great. Um, how about David Crawford? Yep, David is coming up from San Antonio. Uh, I'm going to try to do this both mornings, and uh, David should be at both of them. So you can meet and shake the hand of David Crawford. And how about Stephen Harris? Stephen Harris, Dave Duffy, David Crawford, and Jack Spirico all there to meet with you on either Friday or Saturday morning before everybody else gets in. So I'd love to have as many of you guys as possible come out to these expos uh, and uh, and meet with us. That, that'd be awesome. I'm also thinking about maybe doing something in conjunction with that weekend with just a brief tour of our property to see what we've done. I don't know if we're going to do that or not yet. I have to talk to Dorothy and see how we would make it happen. But since this is in my backyard and a lot of people will be there anyway, maybe we could do something with that. Just basically walk you around and show you what we're doing and what we're planning. Um, not a, an official event, nothing that we would charge for, maybe just an informal stop by uh, on uh, on that weekend or something like that after a certain time. I'd also like to do something with some kind of a, a you know a meetup after after hours, so to speak, or something like that, though they run that expo so late, I'm not there till the doors close, guys. Uh, I don't run a booth, uh, so maybe it would be more of like a six, seven o'clock thing. Uh, I don't know what the hours are going to be this time, but the last one we did, the hours were uh, till 7 p.m. Okay, they've they've gotten a little bit shorter now, so yeah, maybe right after the uh, the expo, then we could do a, a meet and greet uh, with you guys out at a bar or something like that. Anyway, wanted to get that knocked out, promote that. Love to see you guys there again at the uh, Self Reliance Expo. You can learn more at Self Reliance Expo dot uh, com. And uh, the meet and greet that I put together, it's the only thing like that at the expos. Uh, it's really great of Ron and Scott that they let me do that and give me the time and, and make you guys get treated like VIPs to get in early. Um, with that, let's go ahead and take your first email today. 
Okay, one way that uh, a story will almost always end up on the show is when I get it from a lot of people. And uh, this one came in from a lot of people. It's kind of making the rounds right now, and people are giving their thoughts on it. And it falls into the category for me of, damn, I'm tired of being right. And uh, it's the first salvo in an attempt to get access to your retirement accounts. And as always, it's the evil rich people that we need to get first. That's always what we do to set precedent and then turn the sights on the American people. Or, you know, I want you to think about it this way. What's evil and rich today will be middle class in 20 years. I want you to really think about that. There's a lot of policies that are put in place that they they talk about how it only impacts the wealthy. And uh, with inflation and time, uh, what was wealthy today is not wealthy tomorrow. And uh, that's one way you can play this. But here we go. Obama budget to take aim at wealthy IRAs. This is on the Hill.com. President Obama's budget to be released next week will limit how much wealthy individuals like Mitt Romney can keep in IRAs and other retirement accounts. Why is Mitt Romney part of this? Right? Because when you hear the number that they give for how much you can accumulate in a retirement account under this plan, it's people far less wealthy than Romney that would end up with this much money. In fact, many Americans, young Americans today, would hit this cap uh, before retirement in, in total amount inside an IRA. Listen to this, okay? The proposal would save around $9 billion over a decade, a senior administration official said. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You want to understand what that means? That's a little sentence that everybody else would just pass over, but Jack doesn't pass over it. That would save around $9 billion. It doesn't save shit. It takes $9 billion, Okay. What they mean by save is right now the money sits in a retirement account. It's not taxed. But they would be able to tax it. So it doesn't save money. It takes money. Okay, this is on the revenue side of the balance sheet, except government should not be able to use the word revenue. They should call it what it is, tax and theft, okay? So it would, uh, let me, let me change the wording here for you to be more accurate. The pro proposal would steal an extra nine billion over a decade from the American people, said an administration official, who also bring, while also bringing more fairness to the tax code. This is about making it fair. The senior administration official said that wealthy taxpayers can currently accumulate many millions of dollars in these accounts, substantially more than is needed to fund a reasonable level of retirement savings. So now the government's going to tell you what's reasonable for your retirement. All right? Listen to this. Under the plan, a taxpayer's tax-preferred retirement account, like an IRA, could not finance more than about $205,000 per year of retirement, or rate around $3 million this year. So basically what they, what they said is they want to cap IRAs at $3 million. You might not think this affects you. If you're 20 and saving 10% of your money in a retirement account like this, it will affect you. It will, if you will, you will accumulate $3 million in your retirement account. You will. Now here's an interesting thing. I'm off the article now. I'll go back into it in a second. Okay? This is an interesting thing though that, that that's not said here. Cause again, Jack tells you what other people miss. When you get to a $3 million account, you can't contribute to it anymore, but what's going to happen to that account while the money sits in there? It would continue to do what? Appreciate and become worth more money. 
So let's say that you worked your ass off. You're a, an upper middle class person. You got a good job right out of college at 22. You started putting 10, 15% away right away. You made smart investments in your account. Uh, by the time you're 45 with inflation, I'm talking 20 today. So we're talking 25 years into the future. Three million ain't going to be what it used to be. You hit three million dollars. And you would think, well, I just can't put any more money in there. Oh, no, Monfrey, that's not what that means. That means that any money above the $3 million becomes subject to taxation. And under this proposal, it would become subject to taxation as income. Income, folks, subject to the income tax, thereby exasperating the problem by potentially raising your tax bracket so they could not tax just the money that's inside the account that would now have to come out of the account under some special provision to prevent it from going beyond the cap, but the all the money that you earn because now it would be income. Because, see, when money comes out of a IRA, it's income. It's not Capital gains. You see how that works? It's income. Now, how would this work with a Roth? I don't know. Because you're not supposed to ever have to pay taxes on a Roth. But once you went beyond the ass clown's cap of $3 million, maybe you would. Again, I know $3 million sounds like a great big number you don't have to worry about. Your children will. Your children will. Think about 20 years ago. Just 20 years ago. All right, so this is 2013. We're back 1993. What was a $100,000 a year salary worth in, in, in 1993? How well could a person live on $100,000 a year? I know there's plenty of people who don't make that still today. But you have to acknowledge that it was a significantly um, higher achievement in 1993 than it is today. And, and it allowed for a much higher quality of life. Go back 30 years. Right, Because you're talking about saving for retirement. You know they're going to raise minimum retirement ages. You know that's going to be – they're even going to do it with the, the pension funds and stuff that are 59 and a half right now. You know that's going to increase um, at some point. So a person that's in their 20s right now, 30 years, is easily in that time frame to be affected by this. So now instead of 93, go back to 83. What was a hundred grand in 1983 worth? What was a millionaire in 1983 worth? Just a, a garden variety, you know, net worth 1.1 million. How big a deal was it to be a millionaire in 1983? Is it a big deal to be a millionaire today? Yeah. Can a millionaire live off his money today? Just, you know, with interest rates where they are, just set it aside and not, and, and say, I'm, I'm not going to deplete it. I just want to live off the profit of a million dollars. And the answer is no. No. Not a very good life anyway. I mean, there's ways you can create annuities and guaranteed cash flow and all, but it ties the money up. It used to be, I mean, in 1983, you could have taken a million dollars, put it into a bank, or put it into several banks so that you had different levels of FDIC insurance, collected interest, and you could have had a pretty good life on a million dollars. My point is $3 million in 20 years won't be what it is today. The way they're going, the way they're going you might have people making a half a million dollars a year in 30 years that are considered middle class. Don't think it can't happen. It's just one way to play this game. These guys think long term. All right, so now let me go back and read the rest of this. Romney, Obama's 2012 opponent, had an IRA several to many times that amount, leading to questions about how the former Massachusetts governor was able to squirrel away so much money in that sort of retirement account. 
The president's budget expected Wednesday. Oh, gee, the president has a budget. What a what a novel idea. He's only been in office six years or five years, whatever the hell it is. Five years, he's finally got a budget. Wow, that's, that's a great idea, right? Uh, well, maybe he's got another one that even his own party doesn't want. Who knows? Expected Wednesday has several revenue-raising proposals that come as Democrats and Republicans continue to spar over whether more tax increases are needed to reduce deficits. Earth to the Congress to reduce the deficit, cut, quit spending money you don't have. The end. Done. Okay, anyway. Obama's framework also includes higher taxes on cigarettes as a way to pay for expanded access to pre-kindergarten. Oh, somebody think of the children. Uh, congressional tax writers in both parties and both chambers are currently examining the code in hopes of broad tax reform packages. So the last little part there is, you know, we want to make sure we start indoctrinating Johnny at four instead of five. So we want to make sure that everybody can go to pre-K and we'll do that by taxing cigarettes, which are already taxed at like a thousand percent or something. It's ridiculous. It's one of the most taxed items in the economy, the cigarette. I think cigarettes are nasty. I think they stink. I don't think you should smoke. By the way, if you come to my house, do not smoke near my house, and you are responsible for your butts when you smoke outside at least 50 feet away from my house, just so you know. Anyway, um, but why are we taxing them at like a billion percent? And, and, you know, it's like the well you can always go back to. Because people are addicted to them and you can tax the crap out of it and nobody complains except the smokers that, you know, the general population has gotten to a point now where smoking is like a, a I don't know, like a, like a dirty thing or something. And so it's like, yeah, I don't care about them. And, and all you need to do is make sure that there's the majority of people are non-smokers and you can tax the, there could be 40% of the population that smokes. You can tax the hell out of them. They can scream all they want. There's nothing they can do about it because the 60% are enough to keep taxing them and not care. Gee, maybe they should do that with marijuana, I'm just saying. They might make a lot more money and really reduce the deficit then. But anyway, this is just the first salvo. I've told you they're coming for your retirement accounts. They're coming for your pensions. It's one of the last untapped sources of wealth out there. It's in the trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars under pension fund management at different layers. They're going. They're not going to do it this way with a frontal assault, And even the three million dollar figure and inflation indexing and all that taking over time and it's so far out that it's it's something that they can't use in time to do what they need. They're going to come to you with some sort of fix the problem safety net for you. What they're going to most likely do is create some sort of a special new type of IRA that's specifically for poor people. Yes, for poor people to save money. Uh, they'll probably have employers be forced to put money in it, you know, 1% or something like that of all wages. And it'll be just like Social Security, except it'll be private sort of because it'll be fascist because it'll be government and industry working together because the big banks will love this because it's more money in their system, you see, in brokerage accounts and moving around between stocks and bonds and everything else. Uh, and they'll force a lot of that money into United States treasuries, and then they'll say how great it is, and it'll be for lower-income people, and eventually the middle class will beg for it. They'll scream for it. They'll demand it, and they will give you this opportunity to move your money from your old accounts into this new type of account. That That's probably one way that they could crack this nut. They have to be careful with this, though, and it's not just because it could create, you know, like, a blood-in-the-streets revolution, which it could. Um, they have to be careful because if they go after that money, and this is what all of the people don't get, okay? All of the people telling you they're just going to come take your money away from you and just, just do it overnight, seize it, and grab it. They can't. 
the majority of the money that's in these accounts is not in bonds, okay? Um, it's not in, in, in savings accounts or money markets. The majority of this money is holding mutual funds. And those mutual funds are portfolios of stock. If the government were just to seize all the pension accounts right now and grab 10% of it as some kind of an excise tax or something like that, they would have to then actually force the sale of 10% of the assets with no buyers because everybody's losing 10%. So there's no one to pick up the other side of the transaction. They would literally cascade the stock market into complete oblivion overnight. They've got to wean you into this system and they've got to create a new vehicle that starts pumping money into their hands through the treasury. So they've got, they can't do it the way that Carl Denninger is telling you and all these other people are telling you they're going to do it. They can't because they'll crash the market. And believe it or not, they don't want that. They don't want to stop. I mean, I'm not talking about make the market go down a thousand points, guys. You force the sale of 10% of all stock in the hands of the, the middle class, the upper middle class, and the wealthy retirement accounts right now. You will drive the market through a floor and beyond it. Okay? It will, it will start a cascade panicked failure. Because again, you're going to be selling stocks that there's no one there to buy. Because who's going to buy it? You understand that? So this is where you got to put your thinking cap on with this and understand. Yeah, they want your money. Yeah, they're going to change the deal. They've got to, these guys aren't stupid, right? They've got to wean you into it and create this new funnel of money. The way they'll sell it to you is they'll basically create a mandatory pension for people earning less than. That will be the magic words. I'm telling you it's coming. And everybody will tell me I'm nuts and I'm crazy and I'll just say, look at the, look at the past. Look at the history of predictions here, right? Cause this is, this, let me tell you how you do this. Watch, watch how this works. Your, your president or congressman come up. They might even do this jointly because they'll say, this is a good thing. It's not a tax. It's, it's, it's investing in America's future. Uh, all, if you are an employer and you pay an employer less than $50,000 a year, then you are responsible to now put away 2.5% of their earnings for them in a qualified United States government-backed pension account. Well, I thought that was Social Security. Oh, this is different. Everybody knows you can't live on Social Security. This is, this is to encourage savings. And then the, the employee will be told, you can put money in if you want to. Right? So, and, and what they might even do, they might even do this. Why not mandate it? The employer does 2%. The employee does 2%. That's 4% of all earnings under 50,000 in the country. 50,000 just seems like about the right number to, to enforce this at. They'll say, they'll come up with some study that proves that those people save less money. No shit, because they have less money. And it'll be like a forced savings account. And there'll be all these bells and whistles around how great it is. And they will tell people over and over, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. And the guy that makes 52,000 will say, well, why don't I get 2% too? It's not fair. Give it to me. Damn it, I want it. I am entitled to my 2% from my employer. I'll put my, I want it too. Can you see that happening? This is the trap. This is the trap, and they're going to fall for it. I say you, I don't mean you personally. I mean the American people will fall for the trap. It's a simple trap. It's an easy trap. It's what they're going to do. They have to. They need to get access to this money, and they need to do it in a way where they don't tank the ship while they're stealing from the ship. This is how the looting will begin. Start with the enemy, the rich guy, then use the poor guy as bait, 
and then everybody's all in, and nobody figured out. Nobody can figure out how it happened. And gee, if you think the government will keep its word this time, ask an Indian about the government keeping its word. All right, let's take another one. Let's go into the world of a full-scale breakdown. Let's say that things have gone really bad, lights out level of bad, right? Going home level of bad, Patriots the collapse level of bad, 299 days level of bad. The economy is off the rails or the lights went out, whatever happened. I mean, it's 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 the apocalyptic uh, shit hit the fan that we all fear as being the worst possible result. So we have barter, and people start to trade things they need and don't need uh, with each other so that they can keep some semblance of an economy and people can get what's important to them and get rid of what they have in surplus and no longer need. Here's an interesting question I never thought about before. It comes from Logan. Logan says, Hey, Jack, is there a danger in a large-scale barter and trade during a temporary shit-hit-the-fan episode? For example, what if I want to barter or trade our small commuter car for a tractor so we can work our land? It would be win-win for both parties, as they are trying to optimize fuel economy to get out of Dodge, and we need the equipment more than an extra car. Because I guess you wouldn't be joyriding during this period of time, right? My concern is that most people I know don't truly own anything. So I would be trading my paid-off car and title for something with a loan that technically the bank owns. When the bank comes back online, as I'm sure they will on some level, you're dead on about that, how can I protect myself from them coming after that asset? Or is this something that is too far-fetched to even worry about? It might be unlikely, but it is an interesting question. And I think that you would, in that scenario, say, how badly do I need this tractor and how long can I expect to retain it before they come and get it? Because you would have no legal claim to the tractor because the individual who gave you the tractor had not fulfilled his obligations and had a debt against it as collateral and the bank certainly would be able to come take it from you. If, if you couldn't, if they couldn't, right? Then this would be everybody's get out of jail free card, right? I have a truck. I can't pay for it anymore. I just give it to my brother-in-law. I gave it to him. It's his now. You can't have it. You know. Now, what you would be able to request is what is what is owed on the tractor, and then you would be able to take that into equation of the barter. So maybe the tractor is only worth three thousand dollars, right? And the car we would say is worth three thousand dollars, even trade. But the tractor still has a thousand owed on it because the bank will happily take the money from you. Right, so now you got to say to the other side of the person in the barter exchange, um, yeah, your tractor's not worth this much. It's worth two thousand dollars to me because you still owe a thousand on it. So if you want this barter to go through, I need more from you than just the tractor. I need another thousand dollars worth of whatever a thousand dollars is worth to you at the time, and, and that's how that would have to play out because you would have to just assume that you're going to have to pay for the tractor. Um, there is another way to look at it, is if you really needed it for something. I mean, you needed it. you got to have it. You're, you're, you know, if you got the situation that you're just talking about where you would even do something like that, you're probably looking at six months or more before the bank can figure out who has the tractor and come ask for it, uh, or even would be able to take it if you gave it to them. So you might say to yourself, having this tractor for four months or five months is worth the fact that eventually they're going to come take it away. And at that point, I can decide to either pay the debt due on it 
or not. And they might be in the deal-making mood. You might be like, hey, this guy traded me the tractor. I've got all the paperwork. It says I owe you a grand. You guys are in deep shit, too. How about 500 bucks for the tractor? No? Take it away. Because they would be repossessing so much stuff, they, will, they would, wouldn't want it all. They wouldn't do with it. Because here's the situation. In that sort of a breakdown, what's that tractor worth? See, you, you, you can't lose in this scenario as long as you go into it with an open mind and an open understanding of the situation because here's the two possibilities one at the end of the 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 problem the end of the catastrophe as things begin to get back together the tractor is going to be worth significantly less than a debt owed on it all right you got use of it you didn't pay anything on it you know unless you were making payments during this time which if it's that broken down you probably couldn't if you wanted to okay And at that point, you can go into the deal-making deal with the bank. And that is, you know what? It's not worth a thousand bucks. You want it? Take it. I, I'm willing to give you $500 for it. Or $400. Or $300. Depending on what, what the state of things are. See how that works? Okay. What if it's the other way around? What if that so much has been lost and destroyed, looted, ruined, plundered, etc. that a tractor is in really high demand and it's worth far more than a thousand dollars? You don't have a problem. You either pay the thousand bucks, hopefully you still have it, and you got a screaming deal on the tractor, or you sell it to somebody who has far more than a thousand, you pay the bank and you make a profit. But it's an interesting question, Logan, one I've never really thought about before, and that's just how my entrepreneurial mind solves the problem. Um, that doesn't mean every deal would be a good one, but that's the analysis you would have to put a deal through if the person didn't have title to the item. Now, There's another type of thing out there that's an ethical quandary, but you're never going to have the problem of somebody showing up and asking for it. There are houses across America full of tons of shit that were purchased with credit cards, but that person assumes the credit card debt without putting those goods into collateral. So if the tractor, right, wasn't financed through some sort of like John Deere dealer financing, if it was purchased with a MasterCard, it's not your problem that the tractor's not paid for. It's the guy with the MasterCard bill. His debt doesn't transfer to you. So that's another thing to look at. And in that case, he should have title to the tractor. You see? so And, and if he says, I bought it that way, then where's the title? Well, they won't give me the title. Then you didn't buy it with a credit card. Because if you bought it with a credit card, you would have the title. Got it? All right. Let's go on and take another one. Uh, the next one's just a little thing. If you really want to see it, you're going to have to uh, go to the survivalpodcast.com and uh, look up show 1106 and watch the video. This isn't one of those videos where I can play the audio for you and, and do any good. Um, but it's from our good friend, Mr. Paul Wheaton. Paul says, Jack, I can't even remember exactly what went down, but I do remember that your peeps wanted to see how invisible Mike Ayler's house is. I drove out there shortly afterward But Mike was super cranky that day. Gee, an old man that was cranky? What a surprise. And I ended up just wasting seven hours of driving. Well, I went out there again last fall, and this time I got the video. It's now edited on YouTube. I made this just for you and your peeps, and it's on YouTube. And I'll put a link in today's show notes 
So you can see uh, Mike Ehler's uh, underground house. And the name is Ehler, but it's spelled with an O. O-E-H-L-E-R. And if you go look up Mike Ehler on Amazon, you can find a book on how to build these houses. I think it's called the $50 and Up Underground House Book or something like that. Anyway, I will have a link in the show notes today for you to see it. It's pretty freaking cool. I mean, you listen, it's his daughter, and it looks like she's walking out of the woods, and she's walking out of this house. Uh, I would definitely check this out just for your amusement, if nothing else. Okay, next up, this one came in from who? Kate. Kate sent this to me. Russians proving that small-scale organic gardening can, in fact, feed the world. Pretty cool. I'll read the article to you in just a second. I want you to think about something, though. Whenever I post something, specifically on Facebook, where maybe I'm not really well known uh, to the person responding, uh, about growing food naturally, about the dangers of GMOs, etc., I always hear the same crap, and it always is from the angle that they think I'm some kind of leftist hippie nut job granola chewing uh, person. You know, they, like like I, you know, I'm a leftist is what I always I get. The, you know, it's like you're a leftist. Why? Because I care about the food that I'm eating. I'm a leftist. You're freaking nuts. But the, the argument is always you can't do it. Right. So with that in mind, let's listen to this article. It's on uh, Reclaim, Grow, Sustain is the uh, name of the blog. When it's suggested that our food system can be, can be comprised of millions of small organic gardens, there's almost always someone who says it isn't realistic. And they'll quip something along the lines of, there's no way you could feed the world's growing population with just gardens, let alone organically. Really? Has anybody told Russia this? On a total of approximately 8 million hectares, or 20 million acres of land, 16.5 million Russian families grow food in small-scale organic gardens on their dashas, a secondary, a secondary home often in extra-urban areas. Because growing your own food happens to be a long-lived tradition in Russia, even among the wealthy. Based on the 1999 Private Household Farming in Russia, Guskomat, the State Committee for Statistics, Statistics, These Dasha families produced 38% of Russia's total agricultural output, 41% of the livestock, 82% of the honey, 79% of the sold cattle, 65% of the sold sheep and goats, 59% of the milk. I bet it's raw milk, too, and no one dies. 31% of the sold poultry, 28% of eggs, 91% of potatoes. 76% of vegetables, 79% of the fruits. If Russian families can manage such production in their region's very short growing season of approximately 110 days, imagine the output most parts of the world could manage by comparison. Unfortunately, in just the U.S. alone, lawns take up more than twice the amount of land Russia's gardens do, an estimated 40 to 45 million acres. So, because I know what some people that never want to believe this is possible were thinking when I read it. 20 million acres, that's because Russia's huge, man. That's why they can do that there. It's a, we don't have, no, we have 40 million acres of freaking grass. Grass that we mow. Grass that requires, and you know what? We could feed rabbits with it. We don't even have to get rid of the lawn. We could put 
poultry and rabbits on our lawns. They would, the average suburban yard, are you kidding me? Three or four rabbits tractored around having bunnies for food and, and four laying hens moved around in a paddock shift. You, you, you would never have to mow a tenth of an acre. It would be just enough to keep them going. And you wouldn't have to do anything except get free eggs, some chickens once in a while, and rabbits. I know not everybody wants to do that. It's my point. Don't tell me you can't do it. Don't tell me it can't be done. We have twice as much land available. We have a longer growing season. We have more fertility if we would actually stop destroying it. And we have a more educated population in many ways than the Russians do. And we could be doing this. But, eh, you know, we just grow grass and keep spraying things like freaking, you know, Amelia Pennant. I don't, can't say the name of that crap. There's that, that really toxic shit that they put on uh, a lot of lawns now uh, that's destroying our compost. That's a much better use of our land, our 40 million acres, right? Bermuda grass and Raleigh St. Augustine. That's that's what we need, you know. We need that with no, you know, God forbid there's a weed. Let me tell you something, folks. When you're looking for a, for land and you're out and you're you're out on a piece of property and you're evaluating it, if you don't see weeds on that property, run away. Run away, run away, run away, run the hell away. We looked at one house we didn't buy. I'm so glad we didn't buy it. It had an 10 acres of irrigated pasture and it was all grass. There wasn't a freaking dandelion. On 10 acres. There wasn't a broadleaf planting. Uh, there wasn't any uh, chickweed. There wasn't anything but grass. You know what that means, don't you? Don't buy it. Uh, another thing we, you know, gets mentioned once in a while on the show, but it's something that we should keep in mind. If you go to a lot of parts of the world where they still actually care about their health, and you go and you go to like a farmer's market where people are selling vegetables... The people buying them will inevitably want to buy the lettuce with a couple of holes in the leaf where a, a, something ate it because they absolutely know that there's no poison on that plant because the bugs don't eat plants that are poisoned. We could learn from the rest of the world. In this case, we could learn a lot from Russia. Let's take another one. Okay, so next up, I've been talking quite a bit lately about the teacup generation, our children, and it's not their fault. It's our fault. We're doing this to them. We're not letting children struggle with freaking anything anymore, and I thought I'd pretty much heard it all. I mean, I've seen the basketball games or in soccer games where they don't keep score because it's just about having fun, and nobody loses, everybody wins. I brought you guys the Easter egg hunt that was taking place on a vacant parking lot with no place to hide the eggs, and they're all out in the open. We brought you the story of the 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 freaking idiot parents that want to build a million-dollar bridge across a four-foot-wide ditch in, in, in North Texas, of all places, so their kids don't have to cross four inches of water because uh, they could get hurt crossing a freaking ditch, the kind that most of us grew up playing in. Um, it's it, I, I thought it was... You know, this is as bad as it gets. Not so much. No, not so much at all. It actually gets worse. So I'm going to tell this story. I don't think it'll bother my kid because I don't think he listens to my show ever. He has a girlfriend, and they were over at our house a couple of weeks ago, and we made some food, and I made ribs, you know, which I'm do a pretty good job on ribs. I 
I do them right, you know. And she ate them and she liked them and all. But um, and I don't. She really didn't say anything about it. But you know, it's meat on a bone, and why would you? And uh, then we started getting into a conversation about how hard it is to eat healthy. And she's like my son. She's young. She's 23 years old. She's got a kid of her own, and it's hard, you know, when you're you know living on the wages that most people at that age make. You're still going to school, and, and so but she actually seems to take an interest in healthy eating. So I tell her about these chickens that you know of all places Walmart has. They're not organic, but they're not overly priced, and they're a natural chicken. You can see the name of the family. And she says, you know, I don't like meat on the bone. I said, what? She goes, I grew up, my, my mom always made meat boneless. I'm like, that's, but the flavor comes, and, you know, you could cut it off. And, like, she didn't really want these chickens, even though they're only a few bucks more, and it's a much healthier product. Guys, if you go, I think it's Organic Valley, Mike, not Organic Valley, something Valley or something like that, all natural. And it actually, you could tell, I mean, if you get one of these in a Tyson chicken and open them up side by side, the Tyson chicken stinks. These things are a much higher quality product. The name of the family to produce the chicken is on the label of each one. It's one of the few really good things Walmart's done. She doesn't want chicken on a bone. I'm thinking she's unique and she's weird, right? But whatever, she's quirky. That's I don't care. I mean, it's fine. You don't like me. Everybody's in time. Uh, but, you know, to, to like what they like and not like what they don't like. But I thought this was unique. Apparently it isn't. To submit, I submit to you the following. We have a new product in Boneless Skinless that's perhaps the biggest new product introduction that we've had in the past decade, perhaps the last two decades. It transforms how people think about this brand. And we are on a mission to overtly change the way people think about the brand, change perceptions, provide products that are more contemporary. And this is our world-famous original recipe chicken without the bones. And that's the essence of what we're doing. It's boneless, it's skinless. The test market results that we have are unprecedented, and we're ready to launch this on April 14th. It was easier to eat because it was boneless. It didn't take as much time. Uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Well, I think the boneless chicken is good. It's less messy. I don't mind um, paying a little more for something that's more convenient. So the way we intend to market the product is through a, a very compelling advertising campaign. The idea behind it is a, a, a key, it all rotates around a key line, I ate the bones. So it's really addressing the perception head on that KFC has bones and the people are going to be surprised that it doesn't. So it's fun, it's energetic, it's upbeat, it's very youthful. Um, there are two television commercials going to be running starting on the 14th, um, which, is, which will drive the campaign, but also two teaser ads. So no one's going to miss it. It's going to have a huge amount of media spend behind it. And even in our tests, we've got people talking about it. We've got people making YouTube videos. It's all over Twitter. It's all over Facebook. A huge amount of fun. So we expect I Ate the Bones to be a colloquial term being used around the United States in a few weeks' time. So I know you're thinking, Jack, why do you care about Kentucky Fried Chicken and what they do? And the boneless chicken is a popular product. Why wouldn't they do it? If you read the article that goes along with the story, they're specifically doing this to take aim at the millennial generation. Yes, the millennials. The kids, they don't like bones. And you hear the, the one dude like, oh, it was a lot easier to eat. He's like 19. Um, it's, it's messy, all this stuff. So basically what you've got here is a, a generation that's been so catered to That they hadn't had, haven't had to deal with a bone, and they have an aversion to food on a bone. Seriously, do you, 
Can you really think about that for a minute? I know you don't think it's a big deal. I know some of you are going, why is this even on the survival podcast? I want you to think about the fact that we store food. I want you to think about the fact that we grow our own food. And I want you to think about the fact that America is one of the only nations in the world with fat, poor people. Okay? We have fat, poor people in this country. I want you to think about another nation, just about any other nation that has poor person. Poor people in other nations are not fat. They're skinny. They're starving. Why? Because they're poor. They also wouldn't turn their nose up at a piece of food because there was a bone in it. This is our future. People that can't eat meat on a bone. People that can't find an egg hidden in grass without feeling like they were traumatized. This is our future if we let it continue. Parents, please challenge your children. Parents, please teach your kid to pick up a leg of chicken and eat the freaking thing. If they want it off the bone, give them a butter knife, cook it tender, and tell them, here, Johnny, learn to get the meat off the bone yourself. This, this is what's happening. Everything is being catered to and done for our children at an unprecedented rate, and we are disempowering them. I know you don't think it's a big deal. It's just another symptom. But all of the symptoms add up to cancer, okay? The fatigue doesn't seem, it's just a little, I'm just a little sleepy. I'm a little tired. I got a little bit of pain in my side. I, I got a little bit of a rash. I, it's not, none of it's that big a deal, but all together that means you got cancer. This is cancer in our youth, incapable of adapting to anything, no resiliency, and an aversion to meat on a bone. Because mommy always made sure you didn't have to deal with those nasty bones with your meat. If we ever get into a place where this country's falling, how suited will we be to defend our own land if our kid cannot eat meat on a bone? Seriously, there's people out there that are hungry, and I don't mean it in regard to food this time that want a top spot in the world. And we're doing everything to make sure that not only do we lose that top spot in the world, and we have no ability to defend that top spot in the world, but we're not the way this is going with a, with, with, with a, a, a future like this, we're not going to slide in a second or third, folks. We're going to go to the bottom of the heap. The rest of the world is hungry. The rest of the world is resilient. The rest of the world is hardened. The rest of the world is tough. And we're becoming weak And soft. And history is full of civilizations that rose to greatness and became weak and soft. And if you've ever read that book, it always ends the same way, with a massive fall. And the people that are in charge at the time of the fall have no idea how to cope with it because they've never had to cope with anything. And the higher you go, the further you fall, and the harder you hit the ground. And oh my, have we gone high in our arrogance and our weakness, and our softness at this point in society today. Don't cut the meat off the bone for your kids once they're old enough to deal with it, and many other things that you guys are doing. Stop it! I know many of you aren't doing these things. Tell your sisters, your brothers, your cousins, and etc. Knock it off! Let kids deal with freaking tying their own shoes and eating chicken on a bone. This is going to be the result. Watch the video. I'll have a link in today's show notes. Man, I tell you what. Wow. It's uh, 
It's, it's, it's a bigger impact if you watch it than if you just hear it on my show. Uh, again, it'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, next question's uh, one that I, I get from time to time, and from time to time I answer it. Uh, this is from Jack in Oklahoma. He says, can you explain what a reverse mortgage is? There's a lot of talk about reverse mortgages now, especially with seniors, and there's a fairly substantial number of folks of retirement age and older listens to the show, and there's a fairly substantial number of folks that are going to be in that demographic in the next five to ten years, and this is something that's kind of made the rounds uh, quite a bit. Reverse mortgage is going to work in a house that you either own outright, you've, you've now paid off your mortgage, or you have very, very high equity in the home. So you have a mortgage, an underlying mortgage, but it's it's a very small portion balance due. So somebody's been paying on their house for 27 years or so that has a house that it's through both appreciation uh, and, uh, and, uh, and payments has, has really got a, a high equity side. And it's a way to harvest the equity without selling the house. And it works like this. You have somebody come out and look at your house and appraise it and give it an appraised value, just like you would when you're buying a house. And then the bank makes you a loan against your own house. But you don't have to pay it back. That's it. That's really the whole thing as far as how it works for you. And there's different terms. You can say that I want you to send me a check for X number of dollars a month for the next 20 years uh, or the rest of my life, however it works out. And you can even have a spouse be a survivor beneficiary there. So if you kick off, if the house was in your name and your wife's still around, they'll start sending her the check. And then at the time that that check is the last check over a 20-year period, however it worked out, um, they just stop sending you a check and you just sit there in your house until you die. When you sell the house or you die and somebody inherits the house, then the reckoning comes. And if, let's say, the equity harvest was $100,000, um, effectively it's just like selling a house now that has a $100,000 existing mortgage on it. So the bank gets their money back plus some interest at the time the house is either inherited or sold. So it's it, in some ways it can be a really good deal for some people. I think that it's being aggressively pushed and marketed, and it may get used by people who really shouldn't use it because your house is one of the things you generally make part of your estate and leave to your heirs. Um, and it's like basically one way to grab the last bit of wealth that's still being held in, you know, the middle class in America, real property at the end of their life cycle so that the kids don't get it, the bank does. Um, on the other hand, for an older person trying to survive on Social Security alone, especially somebody that's maybe in about the last 10 years of their life and is starting to have significant medical bills and has a huge portion of equity in that home, it's probably more beneficial for them to do a reverse mortgage than do what many people are forced to do. They sell that big house and they buy a smaller house and they take the profit. The problem is now an older person is, is stressed with a move, which is stressful when you're healthy and young. We all know that if, we've, if you've ever moved. Um, but the other thing is, if in that case, that person's probably lived in that house for 30 years. It was their dream home. And now they're giving it up. So it's basically, the best way I could describe it is selling a piece of your house and getting to keep it until you die or until you decide to sell it. But that piece has now been sold and that leaves only the remainder of the house to be sold. And it, if it, you were to, to leave it to your son, let's say, in that situation, at that point, he, unless he could come up with the ability to mortgage the differential and effectively repay the, the debt, 
he would then otherwise have to sell the home and harvest whatever equity was left for himself. And in a lot of situations, these deals are set up to where very little equity is left. That basically you're selling almost the whole house in advance is the way that it works itself out. The bank's consideration here or, or safety net here is they know that they're not loaning as much as that house is worth. And the longer it actually runs, the better it is for them because if the real estate market does what it normally does anyway and the house appreciates, um, which gives you an interesting angle on this. Um, Somebody who did this right before the real estate market crashed made out pretty good. There's zero risk to the homeowner in a reverse mortgage. The homeowner can't lose other than if they decide they want to sell, if the gravy train runs out, so to speak, and there's no more money coming in, and now they can't even afford to just keep the house. Uh, they could end up in a bad way that way at some point. Um, but again, you'd sell the house, what have you, but... If somebody did this right before the real estate market went on its ass, they would effectively have pre-sold a part of their house while they still got to live in it, and you know they would actually end up in a better financial position. Someone toward the end of their life, again, somebody with less than 10 years uh, projected lifespan, uh, none of, nobody really wants to be like, you know what, I'm probably only going to live five or six more years. But you know, we, we do get into situations like that, um, and they're having difficulties financially. It really does make sense. I don't like the product overall because I know how abusive the lending institutions are being with it to harvest wealth with it. Um, but you know what? I like that it's there for the people that can really benefit from it. It's one of those things, uh, buyer beware, make an informed decision. Let's take another one. Okay, here's the next one. Oof, this, I'm going to do the uh, Reader's Digest version of this one. Uh, this could be a whole show. Um, Luna asks, what is the difference between left-wing, right-wing, liberal, libertarian, lobbyist, and other groups in D.C.? If my American government teacher had been so boring, I might have learned this in ninth grade. So now I find myself behind the eight ball in understanding what's going on with the clowns in office. If you did a show on the past and the stop, please direct me to it. Thanks, Luna. I've done a lot of things about the overall concepts of libertarianism, liberalism, etc., but I don't know if I've ever dedicated a show to it. But let me give it to you, the, the simple, no-bullshit, Jack Spirico Reader Digest version. Left-wing in our politics refers to Democrats, which are people that believe that the wealthy people are the enemies and they should be harvested at will to provide for the less fortunate. The right wing tends to favor large corporations and uh, feel that our wealthiest uh, groups deserve their own special protections because they're entitled to it. And we're all sitting in the middle, and many of us call ourselves left and right, and we don't believe either one of those things. But the clowns that we think are taking care of us in Washington believe those exact things. Okay, But left and right is basically left moves toward the socialist paradigm, a belief that property and, and things should be collectively owned, that wealth should be redistributed. Right leans more towards smaller government, fiscal conservatism, and things like that. It's really not important, though, because your government doesn't actually function that way. 90% of what they do is done bipartisanly, and we get the screw job in the end of it. These are mostly talking points. A liberal 
is an interesting thing because we've all been told liberals are the enemy and in many ways in politics today they are because they're they're heading the car to the cliff faster than the conservative right which would be the counter but the liberal today is not really a liberal the liberal today is a progressive they use the word liberal to sell the concept to the developed world here's the basic difference a true liberal would make a statement like this i disagree with what you say but I would defend to the death your right to say it. A progressive would say, I don't like what you're saying, and you should shut up until we figure out how to make you shut up. Okay, That's the way that liberals in politics conduct themselves today. They want everybody shut up unless they're saying what they agree with. So that's one of the places where it's, it's bifurcated off. Liberal, if you look up liberal in a dictionary you'll find an archaic definition of liberal that says of befitting of a man of free birth. So the original liberal believed that all men, meaning all people, were befitting of free birth. In other words, there should be no one should be enslaved or held by bondage to another man, that everybody had a right to freedom. Okay? That would make me a liberal. Okay? But it wouldn't make me a liberal in the modern political definition, which is progressive, which is the theft of property by government and the redistribution thereof. That's when, when you get down to the brass tacks in it, folks, the liberal agenda today is a progressive agenda of socialism to take from the haves and give to the have nots at the force of a gun. The problem is the so-called right wing conservative, you know, members of our government are doing the same thing just with a different marketing message. Libertarian, that's what I am. A libertarian is almost non-existent in government. Uh, we have one, and he's retired, and that's Ron Paul. He's about the only one at the federal level that was really a libertarian. A libertarian actually believes the positives that are marketed by both groups, liberals and conservatives. Um, a libertarian actually believes, yes, that we should have more social freedoms, that it's not the government's business what goes on behind closed doors between consulting consenting adults. All the things liberals say they believe but never back up with actual laws, okay, or the non-existence of laws. Uh, the libertarian also believes smaller, leaner government with less taxation, less spending. You know, what the Republicans promise you and then grow the government just as much or more than the Democrats do. The libertarian believes simply that my right to swing my fist is inherent and allowable and I can swing my fist as hard as I want, as often I want, till I throw my shoulders out if I want to, right up into the point where your nose starts. At the point that I actually infringe upon the rights of another, now I've gone too far. And that force should only be used for self-defense. If you break into my home and threaten my family, I will shoot you. But I won't go out and, and, and it, it, you know put any type of harm or force on you. Non-aggression principle, something that Democrats talk about, but they blow up just as many people as Republicans when they get in office. Okay, They bomb the shit out of it. In fact, they bomb more people because the liberal media thinks they're the good guys and they don't say anything when they're doing it. It's okay when Obama sends a drone strike in to kill a terrorist and kills children at a wedding. That's okay. If Bush did that, oh, it's awful. But Obama, And I'm not saying Bush is right when he does. I'm saying they're both wrong and the media turns a blind eye. There's your liberal where the libertarian would say we shouldn't be drone striking anybody. If that person's not a threat to us, 
then we shouldn't be blowing them up, period. That's libertarianism in a nutshell. A lobbyist? <laughs> I would suggest that you listen to Defining the Machine, that episode called Defining the Machine, uh, and, and, and you can learn all you want to about lobbyists. But a lobbyist is a person who is paid to influence the government. That's the simple definition of a lobbyist. If I work for Coca-Cola Corporation, uh, I want certain legislation passed or re repealed to make my company more successful. Then I'm a lobbyist, and they'll pay me hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year to go be a lobbyist if I have the connections to get these things done. And the lobbyist will come in and have these meetings and provide funding for the candidates so that they can get committee assignments and get things done. Okay, so it's basically you are a legalized um, blackmailer in, in a way. I have money, you need money, I'll give you money if you do this for me. Okay, so it might work like this. So Coca-Cola would strongly oppose something like labeling genetically modified organisms because they use high fructose corn syrup and they would do everything and anything they could to prevent that because then every kind of Coke would say may contain genetically modified organisms and they don't want that, right? At the same time, they really pushed hard to try to get a change made to law where they could stop putting high fructose corn syrup on the label of their soda. They wanted to change that to just be sugar. And that one didn't get done. But boy, it got close. And that was, all of the soft drink manufacturers, et cetera, wanted this. Because people are learning the dangers of high fructose corn syrup beyond the fact that it's corn syrup. Including things like the fact that it's contaminated. So a lobbyist tries to get these things done. But they will also do things at times that seem counterintuitive. Like push for additional regulations. Now, why would they do this? Because if you're Coca-Cola or Dr. Pepper and you're a big company, you can handle these regulations, but it would make startups' job a lot harder and prevent them from stealing your market share, which means actually competing with you. So the lobbyist plays this role of either trying to get legislation passed or get legislation repealed or deregulated to create a competitive advantage for their company through the use of government. We call that fascism. We call that fascism. That's what that is. For those that have never heard fascism defined on the Survival Podcast before, when I say it, you think of guys with little mustaches and you think of, you know, swastikas and Gestapo. That was something a fascist government did. That was not fascism. Uh, Mussolini was also a fascist. Uh, Axis member Italy was a fascist state. They didn't have concentration camps in Italy. They did a lot of bad shit, but nothing like the Nazis did at all, right? That's the action of a fascist state, not fascism itself. So what is fascism? Fascism is an economic system that is neither laissez-faire capitalism nor communist socialism. It represents a middle way, an in-between way. Okay, sound familiar? We're not communist and we're not free market. We're kind of in the middle, so it's balanced. It's a balanced approach, right? In fascism, though, the corporate entity, okay, the plutocracy, the wealthy corporate government, because the, the corporations are government unto themselves, and the actual government, the, the official government, work in conjunction and use 
divisions between the classes. This is a textbook definition, guys, okay? I'm not making this shit up. The definition, the, the use, the differences between the classes act as a mediator between them to further the goals of both the state and the corporate entities or the business side of things. In other words, it's government and business working collectively, utilizing the differences between the classes to further the agenda of both. What we have is a modern neo-fascism versus a classic fascism. In a classic fascism, the state told the corporate entities what to do, what to make. They could make as much money as they want. They could keep most of it. They could have influence on the law. But the government basically told the corporate people what to do and was in charge. In neo-fascism, which is what I call what we have today, it's the reverse The corporate entities tell the government what to do, and they work together, and this is the key point. And if you look this up, you will find I'm not making this shit up. They, to, for fascism to work, it requires that there are, that the differences between the classes of society are leveraged to the agenda of both the corporate interest and the state interest. In other words, it's good that there are middle class, lower middle class, upper middle class, and it's good that we can say we're just taking the rich people's retirement. It's good that we can say that. It's good that we can come out and tell America, everybody's getting their tax increases, but it's really just on the wealthy millionaires and jet owners. Well, everybody's are going up, but it's not really. It's not. Okay? <laughs> it's It's good that you can make the person jealous of the guy with the Lexus so he'll buy your Neon with the upgrade. Okay? This is how fascism works. It's legalized class warfare. That's fascism. And that's what our government has become. We are a fascist economy run by a group of neo-fascists that call themselves liberal and conservative. And they put on all of this theatrics for us. And they do have different agendas and goals that they want for their ultimate goal. But it's like siding with one side of a mafia family versus another mafia family. They're both criminals. They're both destroying the country. That's where we're at today. They won't tell you that in school anyway. Let's take one more and we'll wrap up for the day. So let's finish up today with another example of me being right. and Even with it being Illinois, wishing I wasn't. So basically I've been saying Illinois is bankrupt and just can't admit it this doesn't say that but if you actually pay attention it, it really kind of does analysis illinois pension fix faces political and legal hurdles illinois lawmakers begin a two-month push on monday to enact major pension reform under pressure from taxpayers workers business groups and bond investors to fix the worst funded state pension system in the united states That's Reuters saying that, not Jack Spirico. The worst funded state pension system in the United States belongs to, ding, 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 Illinois. But gee, I thought progressive socialists had it all right. Apparently not. The key objective to put together a package of reform measures that are capable of addressing a nearly 100 billion unfunded pension liability. They have written checks in the future for pensions for $100 billion that they don't have the money for. And they have no projection that they'll ever have the money. You get it? That's what an unfunded liability is. An unfunded liability means we don't have the bill today, but we know we're going to have to pay it tomorrow, and we don't know where the money's coming from. The only way we can get it is to borrow more, which will create greater unfunded liabilities in the future. You got it? 
There you go. That's the definition of an unfunded liability. Money you're going to have to pay that you know you're not going to have the money to pay when you have to pay it. $100 billion worth. That's not chump change now, is it? Okay. The state's constitution prohibits the reduction in pension benefits to active or retired workers, and reform efforts has been inhibited by warnings made by union groups, thugs, and others that they intend to file lawsuits or block implementation of many reforms. So, see, what Illinois did is they fixed the problem with a law. They passed the law. In fact, they passed the law as high as you can go with law in a state at the constitutional level that said you just can't cut retirement of, of, of active workers or retirees. You can only change the retirement structure for future workers. You can't take away anything. Once you're in and the deal is made, you have to. So the law fixed it, right? Because you can't break the law. See, see, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's again, we're back to everybody should have an angel that farts rainbows and unicorns and the unicorn should get up on the, 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 the rainbow and, and grant you wishes. And we just pass a law that says that. And then everybody gets a free angel and a free unicorn that farts rainbows and grants wishes. And then everybody's happy because the law says So, see, it doesn't work that way. They, they may not legally be able to cut pensions, but what will happen that is instead of cutting it, they'll just fail and you'll get nothing. That's what's going to happen. Um, the president of the Illinois Senate, John Cullerton, a Democrat, said he is preparing a two-pronged attack. Well, that makes me feel good. He will first seek to pass a bill similar to the measure made the House approved last month that would impose restrictions on cost of living increases to pension payments to retirees. So basically, we can't cut it, so let's stop increasing it. Of course, nobody wants that either. As a backup, in case those reforms hit a constitutional roadblock... So <laughs> See, in the government, cutting an increase is still a cut. So since you can't cut it, it's illegal to cut the increase because it's still a cut. Only government thinks this way. Cullerton said he will seek to offer workers a choice. They will either receive the benefits already promised but have to forego state-funded health care in retirement, or they will accept limits on cost of living increases in their pensions and still have access to state-funded health care. Because you got to pay for their health care, too. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with a winning combination to pass a bill, Cullerton said. Notice he didn't say, I'm trying to come up with a winning combination to fix the problem. He just wants to get a bill passed, because if you get a bill passed, it fixes the problem in the mind of a, of a bureaucrat. Pensions are devouring an ever-increasing share of state revenue. Duh. Uh, that, is to that is a worry to the state's bondholders, as well as vendors, school districts, and others doing business with a state that's running as much as a year behind on $9 billion in unpaid bills. Okay, see, as I said, they're bankrupt. They have $9 billion that they were supposed to pay a year ago that they can't pay today. No one in the world but a state could do that. That's the very, they're $9 billion, not in debt, okay? Because debt is debt if, as long as it's serviceable. So as long as some sucker will loan you money to pay the last debt and let you restart things and you can pay all your bills, debt is not in the hole. Debt is debt. They're $9 billion behind on their bills. Walk to freedom if you live in Illinois. Your state is imploding right now. Right now. Illinois' credit rating has been downgraded to the lowest levels among the U.S. state as solutions to the pension problem remain elusive. 
And studies have shown Illinois has the largest funding ratio of any state in the nation. It's elusive what the solution is. Let me tell you what the solution is. You don't have enough money for everybody to get what they were promised, so everybody can only get what you can afford. It's not elusive. That's the solution. It's just that they won't do it because it would violate the state's constitution. Yeah, that's the real reason they won't do it, right? <laughs> It's a convenient excuse to try to kick the can yet again. The House measure, which was sponsored by the powerful Speaker of the House, Michael Magnin, a Democrat, limits the cost of living allowances on pension payments, a significant factor in Illinois' rising pension costs. Cuts to the COLAs were also part of another more comprehensive bill that went down to defeat in the Senate on March 20th. None of the reform bills passed so far by the House or Senate has been taken up in the other's chambers. The madigan back measure, which lists Cullerton as a Senate sponsor, would take the biggest step to reform so far by addressing the cost of living allowances for pensioners. Under it, retired workers would get the current 3% compounded annual automatic increase only on the first $25,000 of their pension. No pension increase would kick in until a worker turns 67 or has been retired for five years, whichever comes first. So you get a 3% raise on the $25,000 every year, not a 3% raise on your total pension. Um, why do pensioners get cost of living increases? I mean, really. You get more money every year you don't work. That's the plan. Every year that you don't work, you get more money from a state-backed pension program. I know that's how Social Security works. It's a disaster, too, but at least it could work. Social Security could work. You know, Medicaid, Medicare can't work. But Social Security, we could fix it. There's plenty of money to fix Social Security. The state can't do it, though. The little lowercase state, Illinois, can't do this. Offering a choice. You can choose which one you get. This is all crap. It doesn't matter what they do. Capping the cost of living increases won't fix the problem. They do not account for very much of the hundred billion in unfunded liabilities. A hundred billion. Do you think it's the three percent increase that's really too much? Or do you think the whole damn thing is too much? It's the whole damn thing. The state of Illinois will go bankrupt within 20 years. Actual bankruptcy, not able to pay any of its bills, down the shitter where it belongs for conducting business the way it has for so long. It is going to die a horrible tailspin death It's what's going to happen to it. A whirlpool of socialist crap going down the tubes, just like California, just like New York. Those three states financially have no future. And you can look at New York and say, it's the business capital of the world, whatever. Yeah, but there's only so long you can play that game. And they'll last longer than California and Illinois will. But they're going to go down the crapper too. And the business capital of the world, I don't know if you've been paying attention or anything like that, but the rest of the world is starting to not really want the U.S. to be in charge of the business capital of anything anymore. So that's changing too. Again, This is the end of the show. I don't want anybody to panic. I don't want anybody to freak out. I don't want you to go out and liquidate your 401k right now because of what you heard at the beginning of the show. I don't want you to run in fear from Illinois tomorrow morning and do something stupid because of what you heard at the end of today's show. These are all things that are setting up for a, a very um, tumultuous future, but there's time in all of this. This isn't going to happen tomorrow. Illinois will go broke and not be able to pay people, and it will cause a cascading economic failure throughout the country, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. Um, but if you are a vendor for the state of Illinois, you may never get paid. 
Apparently, they got $9 billion in bills they can't pay right now. Um, I actually foresee at some point, very, very soon, a federal bailout of Illinois. The ass clown will kick $9 billion over to uh, Deadfish and, and everybody else over there from his old stomping grounds uh, to at least get them up to on par with the books. They'll find some way to do it. It won't be called a bailout, but they will push $9 billion that way. In some way, shape, or form, they'll come up with some kind of an you know, urban initiative, you know, and all of a sudden the money will go in, but it won't actually get used for what it's supposed to do or something like that. Anyway, uh, that wraps up another show. I wish I had more good news for you, but there was some good news in today's show. Tomorrow will be a show with just me, and we'll be talking about some cool stuff. Uh, with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution